Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the RSA. My name is Ashim Singh. I'm an author, broadcaster on the future of work and economic democracy, and I hold the somewhat highfalutin title of Special Advisor on the Economy to the RSA. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's very special online event. Hope those of you watching will take the chance to join the conversation in the YouTube chat here or on Twitter, which you do using the hashtag RSA Philanthropy and uh, try and keep it clean and uh, charitable because we are here to talk about giving, philanthropy, altruism, charity, recovery, pandemics, power. What is the role of philanthropy in the 21st century here and now? Sure, giving is good. We love to give. You wouldn't knock anyone who gives any more than you'd kick a puppy. But in a country where we give less than 1% of GDP to good causes, but we spend nearly a third of GDP on welfare services, is philanthropy a lot of noise and not much substance? Is it worse? In an age of tech oligarchs, are we being zucked by a new kind of tech bro who answers the question of how you solve poverty with, well, we built an app for that. There's no doubt that philanthropic action has had a good pandemic. Mutual aid groups, Vax volunteers, AstraZeneca not making a profit on their jabs. But it's the broader story of furloughs, Green New Deals, the point where we realise that big problems need not little platoons, but big government solutions. All this and more we're going to be discussing with our wonderful panel. Let's meet them all before we get started. First, Paul Vallely, a renowned writer on ethics, religion, international development. He's visiting professor in public ethics at the University of Chester and a senior fellow at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. He's also, McQueen tells me, a fellow borough lad, so top man. Uh, Paul is the author of several seminal books, the latest of which we're here to discuss today, uh, Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, which has inspired our get-together, and I hope we'll get into some detail over the next, uh, next hour or so. Fran Perrin is the founder and director of the Indigo Trust, a grant-making foundation funding primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, which she established in 1999. Fran is also co-founder and chair of the board of 360 Giving, fantastic initiative, campaign aimed at improving the use of data and evidence-based grant giving. And in 2012, she was named philanthropist of the uh, inspiring stuff. And last but not least, we have Sir Bob Geldof. Now, if you've been with that well-known philanthropist, Elon Musk on Mars for this last few decades, you might not know who my final guest is, but for those who are just re-entering the Earth's orbit, so Bob hit the airwaves as leading of the Boomtown Rats. He founded charity Supergroup Band Aid in 84, Live Aid the following year. These raised over 150 million for famine relief and economic development across Africa. And in 86, Sir Bob was awarded an honorary knighthood for his charity work. He's the recipient of the Man of Peace title, along with numerous other awards and nominations. And he and Fran are two of many prominent philanthropic figures interviewed in Paul's fantastic book. Um, also, I should note, at the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts, we love a title, but Sir Bob has very kindly agreed that we, uh, we should uh, call him Bob. He insisted, in fact, we call him Bob for the rest of the, uh, the talks. So that's what we'll do. Thank you, Bob. Um, look, thank you so much for joining us today. I, let's get straight into it. Paul, let me start with you. I want to get into the book. Um, you know, I've written a book that what my publisher always told me was that a book is a line in the sand. They emerge to speak to some burning need. Uh, you spent five years of your life uh, researching this work, but I'm sure it draws on years and years of your work even before that. What was the burning need for this book? Why did this story of philanthropy through the ages in our time need to be told right now? Well, I had uh, been working on uh, the opposite journey, as it were, the journey from charity to justice for, for the past three decades, a lot of it with Bob um, uh, on uh, issues of world poverty, Africa in particular. And uh, I became aware about 20 years ago that uh, philanthropy, which is a kind of background activity, um, suddenly uh, gained a new prominence. 20 years ago, it didn't even figure in the OECD figures. Um, but by 2011, it was a separate item in the OECD uh, books. By 2018, the OECD were declaring that philanthropy is reshaping the development landscape like never before. So I thought, well, from charity to justice, we seem to be going back from justice to charity. So when I got the chance to, uh, to start work on something big and meaty like this, uh, I grabbed it with both hands because I wanted to know what it was that was, that was making this transformation. And I discovered that 
uh, in the past two decades, um, the, the, the philanthropy is burgeoned. There are now a quarter of a, m a million philanthropy foundations. Three quarters of them have been founded in that last 20 years. And between them, they now control $1.5 trillion. Uh, and they're having a, a development, uh, an effect on development, but an effect much wider than that. And so it seemed to me that this was a book which was, uh, you know, it was time to look at this. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And, and I think this idea of activist philanthropy, you know, it's charity to justice idea that you talk about in the book, in your interview with Bob, actually, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to back to that when we, uh, throughout the course well, of uh, the talk, The first person to be called a philanthropist in England uh, was, uh, was, didn't give large amounts of money away. He uh, was John Howard, the penal reformer. We now know him from the Howard League of Penal Reform. And in the 18th century, the, the Enlightenment was very much about uh, a, a different kind of activism. Philanthropists were activists, agitators. William Wilberforce, the slavery campaigner, he was called a philanthropist. Uh, and it seemed to me that Bob is very much the continuation of that tradition. And it goes through now today to people like Marcus Rashford, who are actually using uh, uh, an amalgam of, of activities to push an agenda which is much more than giving money away. But giving money away is important and there are good ways and bad ways of doing it. And Fran is uh, an exemplar of the right way of doing it because she, she looks strategically at what the problems are, but she enters into partnership and passes over power as well as pounds uh, to the people that she works with. Yeah, I think that's really important, this idea through the ages. You know, I, I, when I think about philanthropy, I think of that Hebrew concept, tzedakah, of justice, and I know that charity and justice are absolutely intertwined. And I suppose a question... Well, you're, you're very unusual in that, Ash. You're very unusual, because most people, when they think of philanthropy, think about the Greeks. It's a Greek word, uh, you know, word. it means the love of humankind. And the Greeks had it very much as... Uh, I mean, there were high-minded people like Aristotle who saw... Uh, philanthropy as being about improving the moral character of the giver. But most of the Greeks were involved in a kind of system of, of peer group pressure called liturgy, liturgia, whereby they would, you know, fund uh, Euripides to write a play or uh, send a team to the Olympics or something huge like building a warship or a temple. And there was like peer group pressure amongst the rich to do this. So it was very much a top-down activity. It was very much about cementing the place of, of, of the rich. It was about power. Whereas the Hebrews who were developing this parallel system, um, which as you say, tzedakah is the word for charity in Hebrew, but it's also the word for justice because theirs was a more religious vision and it saw, you know, God had uh, created the world and was generous. And so everybody in it had to be generous. And the revolutionary thing about that at the time was it had this idea that every person was created in the image of God. Now, that was revolutionary in that era because only gods and the only gods were pharaohs and emperors and, uh, 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 and kings. Uh, so for the idea that everybody was in the image of God was revolutionary and it made a philanthropy which is much more communitarian, much more two-way. And so you've got these two traditions which have kind of jostled through the history of philanthropy. Um, and uh, in some eras, one's been more dominant than the other. And what my book calls for is a rebalancing of the two traditions so we get the strengths of both. Fascinating. And that's a really nice segue, actually, into, into Fran, your work, if I may come to that. Um, as, as Paul just said, classical thinkers, they're, they're often, there's often a sort of uh, a split between, you know, on the one hand, being obsessed with the virtue of the giver, the amelioration of the... Of the, uh, of the individual self, but also this idea, which to my mind is something relatively modern in the way we talk about impact and you know, the effect that you're having. How do you know that your giving is making a difference? I always think about Thomas Coram, who's founding this charity, the first charity, all of the first charities, uh, registered charities for children in London, you know, but his foundlings didn't live on average beyond the age of six. So, you know, a fantastic organization for Quorum and his buddies to give, but what was the impact they were having? Uh, I'm, I'm not certain it's all that it could have been. In fact, I know that it wasn't. And I just wonder, Fran, if you think, in terms of the work that you're doing, that we're certainly becoming more tuned into the idea of impact. We talk more about it in these rarefied circles. Many RSA fellows run charities who are obsessed with theories of change and impact. Do you think we're on the right path towards turning, pivoting from philanthropy that's obsessed with the self? to a philanthropy that caters for others. Do we have a ways to go? What's your take on where we're at with all that? There's definitely a long way to go, partly because philanthropy is based on inequality. It's, it's wrong 
that I have the ability to give just through a quirk of fate. I haven't earned this money, I've inherited it. And I wish we lived in a world where philanthropy wasn't necessary uh, because that inequality didn't exist. Uh, but I'm very aware of the moral responsibility that I think comes with the ability to give. And I'd rather that people with money did give. And I can't really imagine why people wouldn't when you see so many problems in the world, the ability to in even a tiny way make a difference um, has to be the most pressing thing. My worry is that philanthropy is really very unreformed and you can look back at changes through history, but actually what we're doing now is still too similar to something that Andrew Carnegie would recognize. Mm -hmm. It's an old fashioned model, quite often of signing a check, giving it away. There's still a power imbalance between the giver and the recipient. Um, and quite often it's reactive. It's based on things we're interested in, people we already know. It's often not strategic. And because there are no market forces in philanthropy, there's no need to revolutionize or modernize or hold ourselves accountable. Uh, and I think that's a huge problem, but that's why I'm thrilled to see there is a critique now. In the last couple of years, authors like um, Edgar Villanova um, and Rob Breach talking about the problems of philanthropy and how we can actually make it better. I think we do need philanthropy because there are things that governments are very bad at doing. Governments not very good at innovation, for example. So if we want things to be effective, someone has to pilot them. And I think civil society is great at testing new ideas. And I'd like philanthropists to give the risk capital for that. If it fails, I've just lost my money. But if it succeeds, it can be rolled out, scaled up. Um, and as I'm sure we'll talk about the role of the advocates, how we can influence government to do what it should be doing. We can't rely on government to always do the right thing. And sadly, we're seeing that with the current cuts to the international development budget. So I want philanthropists to step up, defend what we're doing and say there is a role for it, but also to say we have to get better. And if we want philanthropy to continue, we have to hold ourselves to account, be transparent and take part in a debate that's honest about our mistakes. Uh, the effective altruism movement is really exciting, but everything that's proved to be effective now was unproven once and somebody had to fund testing it, experimenting it before we could look at what's effective. Fascinating. And there's so, so much that's rich there. And I just wondered, you mentioned some authors that are providing a critique. We'll add those to our reading list, I'm sure. But what about examples of practice that you've encountered? Are there any, is there anyone that is doing this really well? that you think, you know, that, 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 that you really think, you know, signposts a way forward? I think there are so many people doing it in different ways and I could pick good examples, bad examples, but one of the problems is that there are so few philanthropists we know anything about because it's still a very private world. Um, and a lot of philanthropists doing the best work are terrified of publicity. I certainly started off as a very private individual I didn't want anyone to know I had this money, um, terrified of the press. And so I couldn't learn from other philanthropists. I didn't have role models I could look to. So it was one of the reasons I try and speak more about it now, because I think there's a big role for donor education. Um, in my mind, there's not one good type of philanthropy. You need to see what fits for the scale of your giving. Unless you're Bill Gates, there are very few single problems that you can solve as an individual. So where do you fit in that ecosystem? Um, what's your own talent and, and knowledge set? I do a lot of work around access to information and the digital world, because that's what I know, so I can be a more informed donor. Um, and what time do you have to give? It's not just the money. If you want to be a champion for a cause, you have to give your time as well. And you need, you need to know how much of that you're willing to put in. Is this your day job or is it your hobby? So we need philanthropists who fit lots of different types there and there'll be good ones and bad ones in between. Mm, fascinating. And, 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 and I guess, you know, that's a wonderful segue, the idea of that, the public-private dichotomy and the public-facing philanthropist into, Bob, into your work over the years. I mean, you've obviously been on a journey or several journeys. There's there was Live Aid, there was that famous moment that's captured in pop, in pop culture, you know, just give, you know, sort of spoken, this declamation, it was, it was 
Greek tragedy to the to 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 to, to the television, and it really worked. It was a pop culture moment. But since then, you've become less of a. It seems to me that activism has really enshrouded um, the work that you do in the philanthropic space. And, and, you, and you spoke about this in your interview for for, for Paul's book. Um, how how do you feel that your approach to philanthropy has evolved since the Live Aid days? in terms of the work that you've been doing. And I'm especially interested in your work as a public advocate, and perhaps also even as your work, your work as a lobbyist. It's a word that's often, uh, it's often has negative connotations, but fundamentally there is a big element of lobbying to the public advocacy work that you engage in from time to time, isn't there? Yes, and arguably that's um, the most important. Um, but I go back to uh, something more fundamental and profound, um, which is almost dismissed. Um, practically everything that we've talked about so far is a result of a developing type of economy and therefore politics. And um, my pet logic at the moment is that there's an entirely new economy which is yet to be understood that functions around the digital age. And um, it moves at such a scale that there is no known politics at the moment that can handle this massive new global 21st century uh, phenomenon. Uh, and as a result, you're getting almost back to an old style, as, as we've heard, Carnegie type thing. And I've got a big thing for Carnegie. I don't think it's as cut and dried as, as Paul makes out in his book. Um, I don't think he was guilt salving. I think he's a businessman who just thought, what's the point? At a certain point, money is valueless. You have none. It's got no value. You've got so much having everything is meaningless, your 25th Picasso, your eighth house, your 16th private jet. So what do you do with it that gives you the same um, sense of achievement that you would get from a, a great business deal? So Rockefeller and you know Carnegie went off and did profoundly excellent things, actually. The Carnegie libraries I'm a beneficiary of in Dunleary in Dublin. That's one, or you could argue I wasn't a beneficiary of it, but there. <laughs> um, and I always revert back to this notion of charity, which does bear on the notion of philanthropy we're talking about now. Um, it's a profoundly personal, individual act. And that always strikes me as being you know, this sounds mawkish, but deeply moving if I think about it. So you're walking by and you see someone homeless in the doorstep and you chuck them a quid. And it's a, no, not in my name. Let me give you a hand up here. And the most I can do and the most most people can do is put the pound, the euro, the dollar, the yen into the charity box. That is a profound act of almost unconscious humanity. You don't know, no, you don't know, no, I'm, not, I'm not standing for this. And the most I can do, even in that fleeting instant, and Valley deals with this in the book, sort of the genetic, almost altruistic notion, which I find really interesting um, as a phenomenon of Darwinism or, or Dawkins, as he talks about. Uh, one of the more interesting characters in the book, George Price. Um, mm. uh, you see, the point is to pass someone by, whether it's on your TV screen or in the slightly warmer porch of the local bank, and to not even acknowledge it, not to see it, is a grotesque human failure. On the other hand, to pause, and again, because it's so ubiquitous now, many of us just, oh, there it is again, but to pause, and extend the hand of fellow humanness, not humanity, but humanness, I think is the essence of what it is to be alive. And to <laughs> fail to do that, then something in the human spirit withers and dies. So you are less alive to the world by ignoring it. That's the first thing. The second point about charity is that when you put your quid in the UNICEF box or the Oxfam box, you are enacting something ancient and profound, genetic, altruistic, and necessary. But when a million people do that, 
then it is profoundly political. And politics are only about numbers. Now, you can have a great think tank or a philanthropic organisation and, you know, people go, oh, yes, yes, and you'll have a conference, but it's only through the numbers behind you that you have access to the halls of power. And when you have access to the halls of power, you begin to discuss policy, never dictate it, uh, but you can discuss it. So all of this is about the individual within society. And of course, we are consumed these days with the notion of individualism. And what Valley talked about, Sadak, and what you talked about, or the, the Islamic concept, or even the concept anywhere in the world, is usually about the individual deciding, I can do something with this money, or I can uh, help. The paradox of individualism at the heart of it is that it only works when we act in concert for the common good, because we will not survive alone. So that's, to me, the impulse. When I watched the TV screen that October 84, it was exactly the parallel of walking by uh, some homeless person uh, over the air docks of some bank. Um, we were made alert to something and unbeknownst to me, it was sickening to everyone in the UK. It was monomedia. It was the BBC or ITV. It was the six o'clock news. Of course, there were other people watching. I just didn't think that. So I responded in the way I knew how. Immediately, I went to Africa with Paul, who I'd followed his reading in the Times to get more of an understanding of this. But, I, but largely, I was sickened and ashamed and angry. So they're the responses. That was it. And of course, we wrote, Midge and I wrote a corny song about, hold on, we've got this, they've got that. And I think the, yes, the, the line that people remember and that I had a huge argument with Bono about, and which still kind of works and which I think we're kind of arguing about now, is tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's that, hold on a minute, you know, what's, what's going on here? And uh, when I trawled on that first trip through this misery, I came armed with an amnesty report. And when I met the various leaders, I felt out of my depth and I felt nervous that I was letting everything, including myself, down. But I would, I would open the amnesty report on the necessary page because yeah. I quickly understood that famine in our case was a function of economics, that we would not starve in the UK, we would not starve in the US, well, they do, but we would just simply import food if that was the case. And of course, Amatya Sen has written, uh, uh, you know, his Nobel laureate is, is, is on this basis. And so that was the, the steep learning curve. And from then on, it became necessary to do live aid because certainly band aid hadn't achieved enough. Live aid needed to immediately deal with the dying but what Live Aid mainly gave us, besides, I suppose, a billion quid in today's terms, was um, access to Margaret Thatcher, to um, Mitterrand, to, uh, I can't remember who the lead, Reagan and that sort of crowd. Yeah. And, and that began, it wasn't that I was naive about politics, I was always interested in it, but it led to Live Aid, which is, oh, you didn't mention it, um, and it's odd because it was, quantifiably greater. Um, and it came about because, again, this, the, the, this thing about being able to mobilize the political forces largely, it was the numbers of Live Aid watching the television that gave us 1.2 billion people in our back pocket. Gradually, a generation came to power who were, had been part of Live Aid and I was able to persuade the prime minister that we needed a newer branch report, but one with teeth. And Valerie and I sat on the culture part of this because culture had been ignored. And I go back now to the previous point about Indigo, that the, that the people who's, in whose name we were, we were doing this, and we were, had really not been consulted. And why a lot of the failure of developmental aid had failed was because of unknown cultures. We, we really didn't understand how all of this worked at the other end. And I think even for Paul, it was really interesting. 
I mean, this was profoundly interesting. I quite like this stuff. That's the odd thing. You know, I didn't know it, but I'm a bit of a geek. And um, and the next part was to force Blair and Brown to enable this commission report, which was really good. It's you know, I'm not proud of much. In fact, nothing, I think, except maybe that commission, which is largely forgotten. It leads to Live 8. It leads to the GAs having to acknowledge... Um, the debt issue, which they largely did away with under certain conditions, and 50 billion extra per year. So what Band-Aid and Live-Aid achieved 20 years later was minuscule compared, did things change? Yes, some, some of the economies began to take off, Ethiopia, for example, which is now regressing, unfortunately. Um, democracy in a, a, of a given type usually arrived at through their own circumstances, which is all you, always tenuous. That began to arrive. The world began to change. The Washington consensus was seen as nonsense. So these things do change. And I, I'm, I'm not sure about the proliferation of think tanks. For example, uh, we set up data, which became the one campaign, which was a deeply... Uh, and still exists, and is full of geeks submitting policy. And then the final part, sorry for taking up so much time, was, was the constant um, barrage from a certain quarter about the naivety of these populists in pop music. Um, it's not about aid, it's about trade. It is about aid. It is about aid. You know, stop. You want to stop people hurting for as long as possible. It's to do with aid. I won't have it about charity and aid. Those people who are charitable, great. I won't have uh, the diminution of the words. The key words have been human, charity and love. And one goes on to the other without being hippie about it. But DJs these days can't say it without using a sort of uh, Barry White type voice, he, our favourite charity, they say, and Lerv. They can't say it without postmodern, uh, you know, quotes around it. And it's at the essence, and it's why ultimately perhaps governments are obliged to look at something beyond policy and forced to take a different view. As someone said, um, they're reluctant to change. Change is always exciting. Change can be good or bad. It comes out of nowhere, but it is only good when it meets the needs of and the requirements of society. It's the process of change that's so debilitating because it's so slow. So the next thing was to prove that any people, given the chance, can have exactly the same life chances as us. So the next thing, fed up with all the critique, I set up a, a private equity fund. I know nothing about finance. I care less about it. But like Band-Aid, like all these things I do, I gather people about me who can do this stuff. And uh, we raised $200 million around that and invested in eight com companies in Africa, which has done, you know, it's a, some are great, some, so, some are not so great. Um, we're exiting them now, but I wanted to, we employ about 10,000 people in Africa that directly affects 150,000 families who are now stable with stable incomes, with education, with housing, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted also to give a return to people in the West. I wanted capitalism read in tooth and claw unashamedly. I don't take anything from it, obviously, but the people who do, what's it, are PE dudes. So they were prepared to do that. So it comes in all guises. It isn't charity. It isn't philanthropy. It's a whole notion of how the world works and how it can just work better. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure that either Paul arrived at that in his book. He touches on it. And I think, Paul, just addressing you directly, the answer always seems to be that there needs to be a political end to this, that governments are ultimately the ones who will right the global balance of inequality and justice. And I just don't believe that. I don't think that's part of the gig. I don't even think that the institutions of governance are capable of doing that. I think that humanity does that. Well, let's, 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 let's let Paul come in on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, what's, what's emerged from what Bob said and what Fran said 
is is this this the the linkages um there are there are there are mixed motives in all philanthropy you know some people are not genuinely altruistic and others are scheming and i mean some people are but most people have got a mixture of motives. They want to be well thought of by, by their peers. They want to do some good in the world. They want to give back something. They want to cement their place in society. There's all kinds of things going on at the same time. And the idea that it's either or is, is wrong. And as Bob said, I mean, Bob was, 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 was sounding like the Pope uh, then. Pope Francis actually says, when you give to a beggar, you mustn't just toss the coin into his hat. You must put it in his hand, look into his eyes and talk to him. And um, at the same time, you must put the money in the Oxfam box or, or whatever. There is no either or about it. You've got to do all of those. And what Fran illustrated was the, the, you know, the need to, 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 to learn from those kind of linkages. She talked about effective altruism. I mean, effective altruism is, is, is great. Uh, it, it's the movement which um, focuses on, you know, what's the most good you can do? Look at the data, look at the figures. And it's, you know, it's obvious where you should be spending your money. The downside of effective altruism is that it, it works fine with a simple model of change. You know, $3 equals one bed net. So that's one life saved. But it doesn't work well if you're looking at something like um, an international a human rights organization like Global Witness, which is looking at um, uh, the, the, the activities of international uh, mining and logging companies and their impact on human rights and in the environment. And, uh, you know, you there's no simple theory of change. So effective altruism doesn't work there. So it's with it. The con conclusion I came to after five years working on the book was that there, there are valuable things in all these different spheres. Uh, and in the democratization of philanthropy through things like comic relief, uh, through crowdfunding and so forth, there's value in all of these areas. The key is to try and work out where the, those different uh, areas do that best and where they are actually, you know, wasting, wasting uh, uh, effort. And if you can bring the, the disciplines to bear upon the, the, the humanity, so you're uniting the head and the heart, then in, in all of these areas, you can find valuable ways of going forward. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting. In, in my book, The Moral Marketplace, I dive deep into some of these, what, what you might call hybrid instruments, these new ways of doing good that enjoin uh, you know, folks from the finance industry, folks from uh, other other disciplines, and enjoin them, enjoin their presence, enjoy their disciplines. In the, in, in, in well, your book is very much about the social entrepreneurism that Bob has just talked about, and, and that Fran um, indulges in. I mean, there is, you know, the risk of you know consensus breaking out. You know, there are there are there are good things to be done in all these areas, and the people in this room are, are part of it. But let's smash the consensus. For, because why not, you know? I mean, um, you know, we, we, we don't have a brief time on this planet. Let's smash the consensus. Isn't the problem here, this has put to me actually on this stage, well, not this stage, I'm in my kitchen, but on the, on the RSA Grey Room stage by a guy called Aaron Girdadas, who's looking at this stuff from the American perspective. Um, he's a journalist, he's not an economist, he's not a finance guy. He just says what he sees, he has an opinion, he writes about it. But his critique, it seems to me, is Aristotelian. What he asks is, okay, people like me can talk about financial instruments. People like Bob can set up uh, their ventures and their incredible, uh, their, their, their incredible ways of working these, these cross-sector partnerships. People like Fran can talk about impact. But this is a question for all of you. Please jump in. You know, isn't, is, isn't the question here rather simple, which is about virtue? Are these the people we really want to have this much power and agency over the futures of others? Do we really want people who we have no control over having this much real objective power over people's lives with philanthropy and philanthropic impulses, social investment, social entrepreneurship being merely their conduit, their vehicle for that power? Well, How I'll, I'll let you virtuous that. system in that. In that in, I'll, in I'll let the others talk to the specifics there, but on a general point, um, uh, Anand is the opposite of Aristotelian. He's got no concept of moderation at all. He's not got <laughs> any concept of good coming uh, in, in, in various different places. He, he takes a kind of, you know, in the old 60s view, a revolutionary socialist view, view, which is kind of like, pull it all down and start again. 
taxes, 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 that will solve the problem. Well, it won't solve the problem because as Fran has pointed out, philanthropy's got a really important role to play in, in taking high-risk innovative strategies, in, in bolstering small groups in civil society who can, to give a voice to the voiceless against the market and the state. Um, and uh, if you went down the the route that he goes down, uh, you just you just end up with a you know Edmund Burke famously said nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because uh, he couldn't do everything, uh, or something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and Anand's uh, a formula leads you down that that uh, cul-de-sac. I, yeah. I would add to that and say I think Anand's asking the right questions, and it's striking that before recent years there hadn't been a good critique of philanthropy. And that's not healthy. If we all sit around patting each other on the back, then we get stuck. And we also can't call out bad practice. So actually, I think most philanthropists do have good motivations and are trying desperately to do the right thing. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily are. And we have to acknowledge that sometimes philanthropy can be just ineffective. That's OK if we acknowledge failure and try to do better. Sometimes it can actually be harmful unintentionally. And there are some great American studies on charitable interventions that have actually made life worse for the people they're trying to help. So I think we have to challenge ourselves and, and hold each other accountable to say, we may fail, sometimes that's okay, but are we always striving to make it better? And because it's very hard for people outside of philanthropy to change philanthropy in any way, you know, if philanthropists don't want to do something, it's really hard to make them unless you regulate. So we have to hold each other to account and constantly try and improve. It's why I set up 360 Giving, because if we can't see what other philanthropists are doing, then how can the public judge whether it's valuable or not, whether it's legitimate or not? So I think we need philanthropists and they have to have some power because the government isn't always perfect. It won't always agree with me on the need for international development or protecting reproductive rights in America. You want to have that neutral, independent charity sector, but that doesn't mean we'll always get it right. So I think Anand goes too far one way of saying it's all terrible, but we shouldn't just say, well, we mean well, so it's always perfect. How do you get that? So, but Fran, how do you get that balance? Because so, so you, you, are, you articulate very effectively, I think, that there is a balance to be struck. And I think this whole conversation so far has been about balance, which is really interesting. And I think that itself is very Aristotelian, isn't it? The idea that you don't want to give away everything so that you starve, but you want to give away enough so that you're not hoarding. But how do you get that balance between... So the pandemic is the obvious example of this, right? So I said, I said up top in my disquisition that the, the, the philanthropy has had a good pandemic in many ways, mutual aid groups, uh, you know, philanthropy being a big part of the vaccine rollout and so on. But also, it has contributed. Not, and, and this is this is not um, this is not a criticism of the individual involved. But Bill Gates, for example, and his work on philanthropy has been the centre of a maelstrom of disinformation, stoked by you know his fellow tech heads. And there is an argument that the power that Bill Gates wields itself has made the rollout of the vaccine quite difficult because people, you know, they're, they're confused. I've, I've got to challenge you on yeah, that. Yeah, you're just wrong about that. <laughs> Let, we'll break the consensus, consensus right here, which is Bill Gates funding of vaccine research and basic science research and funding health systems in developing countries has done more good in um, fighting the epidemic than probably anyone else. You've also Correct. got philanthropists as uh, distinctive as Dolly Parton, who gave a million dollars to fund vaccine research, of which she was then the recipient when she received her own vaccination. Um, the misinformation about the vaccine doesn't come from Bill Gates. It doesn't come from Silicon Valley. It comes from conspiracy theories or just members of the public with, with normal fears. We, we wouldn't have the kind of pandemic response we've had if people weren't funding scientific research years ago. Um, there are many ways you can criticise the Gates Foundation, um, but not for this. Let me just add to that before you move on. I mean, Gates is probably the, the single human being most responsible for the eradication of smallpox. 
uh, on, on this, uh, sorry, of polio, of polio on, on this planet. You know, you should cripple a thousand children every day, every day, and it's gone. Uh, and Gates, you know, Gates started a, a revolution in the, the 1990s on the way that vaccines were, were, were developed and funded. He said, why is the uh, pharma industry uh, developing cures for baldness and slimming pills uh, and not malaria? And the answer he was given was because only poor people get malaria, so there's no market in it. So he said, well, how do we create a market for it? So he came up with a formula, which was he went to the, the uh, pharma companies and he said, how much would you need to do the R&D on this? And then he went to the governments and they said, said to them, if you were guaranteed you'll buy a billion doses of the malaria vaccine, will, uh, will, will, uh, uh, will, you, will, will you undertake to underwrite that? And so through these kind of volume incentives, he created a formula whereby there was an, a, a market for uh, people to work on tropical diseases. Now that was in the 1990s. He's gone through uh, the past decade uh, you know, he, he, he did a, a lot of funding of Ebola in, in 2014. He came back from it and said, what would happen if you had a, a, a disease that was as infectious uh, uh, as flu and as deadly as Ebola? Well, we now know what would happen. But he warned about it in a TED talk in 2015 in the um, Munich Security Conference, 2017, 2017. Uh, every year he went and saw Trump and said Trump to Trump privately, put some money into this. Uh, you, you'll be the hero. The no, no. So, so he goes off and does it on his own. He sets up the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness. He does germ games at Davos. Uh, he, he invests in the five companies that have produced the five leaving, leading uh, va vaccine candidates on COVID. Uh, he's put 100 million into developing uh, uh, the uh, um, Indian, uh, the biggest vaccine manufacturer in the world in India uh, to produce uh, shots at $3 a go for people in developing countries. I mean, Bill Gates has just, just been phenomenal. Um, I even I even suggested he should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, you know that wasn't tongue in cheek. I mean, he's an amazing character. So, I mean, the question that people like Anand should be asking is, what about the nine out of ten mega billionaires who give nothing? Why is all the flack on the philanthropists? And what's the answer to that question? Why does such opprobrium attend the Bill Gateses of this world? Because they stick their head above the parapet and to do something, and they show that they're rich and people snipe at them, they're like a lightning conductor for, for resentment against the rich. Is that, is that your take on it as well, Bob? I mean, obviously you've stuck your head above the parapet more than most. Um, do you feel a lightning conductor for resentment through your philanthropy? Um, it, it's twofold. It's, you're the whipping boy and the lightning conductor, you know, uh, for it. And it depends on your level of celebrity. You know, uh, you know, Bono is quantifiably um, obviously much less of a musician or, you know, frankly, you know, he's a very small person as well. So obviously, like, you know, uh, but uh, no, like he would be attacked more as a sort of a derisory character who's uh, frankly a bit thick because he's a pop singer. He's the very opposite. He's a very, very clever man. Uh, I completely agree with Paul about uh, Bill Gates, he shouldn't be nominated. He should have got this thing, um, the Nobel Prize Prize. He is an extraordinary individual and has achieved like in, in the world, like historic terms. The question to me is this, the critique always of philanthropy and charity, almost uh, the criticism is, uh, it's none of your business. Why do you do it? It's always for your own game, leave it up to governments. But the, the thing is, governments are simply not going to, are not capable. You know, international development aid is a kind of societal philanthropy. We've sort of uh, third-handed off to, to, to government. And it's about as effective, it's, it's probably less effective than people who are engaged in large philanthropic exercise in the first place. It's also an instrument of policy. It's to do with soft power, etc. You can see it with uh, Rab and Johnson slashing um, one of the great achievements of, um, you know, Cameron, I guess. And, uh, you know, it's deeply resented by those of us engaged in this thing. Incidentally, uh, Bill Gates was very behind uh, moving that agenda as well. What would happen if there wasn't philanthropy, what would happen if the charitable impulse was so neutered 
by the impossibility of achieving anything, by the prurience of the television news become so numbing that we just believe you can't do anything, that change is never possible. And uh, that's really the interesting thing to me. I find a lot of the people, you know, who pitch up at Davos and stuff like that, though I've never been because I just couldn't stand it. I'd go nuts. But, um, you know, they're pontificating and that drives me as as much nuts as, as anybody else. But what would happen if Warren Buffett just died with his billions and didn't get rid of them? Or if he didn't have, if Gates hadn't directed him in a certain direction? You know, Zuckerberg, I'm suspect of, you know, but I, I, I'm not sure why, it just strikes me as odd. <laughs> let's park all that. Let's say that Valerie's book simply isn't possible, that these notions never came about. Now, Paul deals with it in the genetic and altruistic bo- born instinct that we absolutely require to take care of each other for our own ends. Um, but if it's just as reductionist as that, then what happens? We, we keep arguing about the impulse and how should it work and et cetera, but say it's not there. Is government capable of doing the things that you know we've talked about? And the answer to me is no. Plus, what do you do where societies are manifestly unequal through poverty and through shit governance because they will never arrive pull themselves out of poverty, African governments, the Indian government, which is woefully inept and inadequate and corrupt. What do you do? You know, do you just stand back and say in, in, a, in a digital communicative world, you just stand back and say, you know what, dude, thanks very much, but, you know, nothing we can do and feel nothing and feel nothing. That's the odd thing. The feeling of nothing is what gets to me. It's got nothing to do with being saintly or anything. You wake up, you turn on the telly, it's shit. So, you know, what do you do? Do you just say it's shit? I'll, I'll just, you know, get on with it. Are you numb to the world? And what yeah. happens if, you know, arguably people who are wealthy or you inherit your wealth or whatever, you kind of go, well, what do I do with this? I don't feel, because of a different background, you know, um, I felt no guilt about being able to scramble and, you know, get out of a relative poverty into a relative well-being. No guilt whatsoever. I feel no sense of achievement from the things that people talk about. None. None. I feel no sense of pride, save for something that's so out of my can, like the Commission for Africa report, which will just gather dust now in the future. Maybe that. But I don't feel those things. So when you when Paul writes about that, a lot of people are motivated by that or, you know, that they want kudos or stuff like that. Yeah, possibly. I don't think Gates does. You know, he's got kudos for inventing the 21st century. He doesn't need the polio stick as long along with it. So it's it always comes down to me to less unpicking the why and wherefores of philanthropy. And yes, obviously, many of the things that people try to do fail, even with the best intentions, but it comes back again to Paul quoting Evan Burke. And then philanthropists are always saying, if, or the religious always say, if we could all do it, imagine how great the world would be. The world wouldn't be great. We're humans, you know. We are destined to fuck up, you know. And so you're just generally trying to be less of a fuck up than everybody else, you know, or trying to help unfuck up things, you know, and that, that's it for me. But what happens if that impulse or those institutions, or you inherit money and say, what can I do with this? I don't think it's a sense of, I am obliged by duty to do something with this, or I want kudos, or I want to be, I don't think it's anything to do with that. And if you do argue that, then you'd say that every religious figure, for example, from from pre-Christ and afterwards, there's something odd and psychotic about them. It's arguably true. And the one I keep coming back to, which I called Paul about the minute I started reading his book, was this character, George Price, 
which would be a fantastic uh, a, a biography, biopic. He got to a point, this great brain, which competed simultaneously with four Nobel prize winners in four separate disciplines simultaneously. He abandons his, his wife and children having studied altruism and philanthropy. And he ends up giving away everything he had. Unlike Francis of Assisi, who doesn't start a community to support him in his giving away of everything, he just dies from having nothing. That's what we're talking about, reductio ab absurdum. So where does it stop? How does it occur? And what would happen if it didn't exist at all? Because governments can't do or will not do, no, can't do, what the philanthropists attempt to. Bob, let me bring in Fran there, yeah. I think we can look at this at the, the theoretical and the philosophical level, but you asked about the pandemic, and there's just a couple of examples that I think make it real. Um, as you said, I mainly fund in sub-Saharan Africa, but when we were in the early stages of pandemic a year ago, I felt that there was an immediate, desperate need within our own communities within the UK. Philanthropy often moves very slowly, and so we said there isn't time to be deeply strategic. We need to get money out of the door. And I gave a million pounds to the Trussell Trust, which runs food banks, and a million pounds to the National Emergency Trust. And that was about saying, I'm not an expert in crisis response. It's not what I'm used to. So I'm going to give it to people who know what they're doing. And Trussell Trust was extraordinary at getting food and supplies to people who would have starved without it. And there's a big case, if you're a strategic philanthropist, to say, we shouldn't have food banks exist. There shouldn't be a need. The government should be providing but it hadn't been in that case and it wasn't going to do it fast enough. So strategy can be give it to the people who know what they're talking about. Then you've got the advocacy. You mentioned Marcus Rashford, who then went to government and said, we need school meals for pupils during lockdown, during the holidays, and forced government to respond and to do the right thing. I then moved on to say, okay, those are big organisations. Trust for Trust runs a national network, what about the smaller communities? What about the people who don't have a voice at the table? And so gave money to a, a really great fund you should look up called Rosa and Imkan, which was a network of domestic violence charities in tiny communities, um, mainly from ethnic minorities, where people were working really deep at the heart of communities. And I said, as a network, you can distribute money to those tiny charities better than I ever will. You have the experience, you know where the groups are and what they need. And I'd like to see more of that delegated giving, saying I'm gonna give the money away, but I'm gonna trust the people in communities to know how best to spend it. And then one of the most exciting developments to me that's happening is uh, a new foundation is being set up called the Baobab Foundation, which aims to be a grant-making foundation run by and for black people in the UK. So what they're saying is philanthropists should give to them we should endow this foundation with as much money as we can, and then it will be regranted by people who are in those communities, who lead those communities. It's one of the most ambitious things I've heard in philanthropy for a long time, but that's the kind of innovation I'd like to see. Those are all different kinds of responses, and there are more just in the pandemic itself. Brilliant, thank you. You just talked Baobab Institute, which is dealing with uh, people in the black community. That precisely is what government should be doing. And they can do it. That's the difference here. And I think the critique then comes in because you've allowed Baobab to do that, then it's given the, the government excuse not to bother, not to have to deal with it. And so they pass by. And you know the root of what's going on with poverty in the black community must be addressed. Not simply just giving you know the the uh, victims of this uh, money to get to get by, and and in that case, I can see the critique of of um, you know against philanthropy. You're just letting the government off the hook. Let, 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 sorry for taking up so much of this time. There's two things. I mean, obviously, we still do band aid every single day of the week, and if I get satisfaction out of anything, even though the lobbying and the policy have made much more difference. It's, I go back to the Band-Aid stuff. Obviously, we're dealing with the horrors in Tigray. I think about four weeks ago, 12 schools that we 
paid for, were razed to the ground, teachers raped, the male pupils were brought home and made to rape some of their family members. And so that goes on. BBC really haven't covered this to their disgrace um, uh, because they couldn't get in was their excuse when I called the, the foreign editor of the BBC. Why aren't they there? That's heartbreaking and disgusting. But while we deal with that and the refugees and the internal displaced people within Tigray and on the Sudanese border, we also fund... Um, an organisation that, that came out of Band-Aid, two Scottish guys saw live aid and start doing something. As you may have heard of it, it's called Mary's Meals. And Mary's Meals is really simple, and I love it. They give one child every day one guaranteed meal. Now, I can't think of anything more fundamental, more basic, more, si more simple. My problem is that year after year, as, each, as more children get a meal, these guys have to keep fundraising more and more. It's like a developmental Ponzi scheme. What happens when one year a funder drops out? How many thousand children don't get a meal? At the moment, we're funding, I think it's, are helping to fund 120,000 children in the Tigrayan capital of Michele. One meal a day. I, I love it. It just appeals to me. That's why I, what I saw on telly. And they're great. That's one. The people who build the schools are a local NGO. Um, it's a tiny little agency called Asset out of the UK, but they use it's a local thing. The second example I want to give you is when um, the people who we brought in to actually run Band Aid, who all did it for free and were extraordinary and built up quite a big organization, which we had built in obsolescence because I didn't want to be Oxfam 2 or whatever but they taught me a lot. And one of the things that Penny Jenden, who was brilliant, who ran it, she came to us with a, a, a small little project. Uh, I can't remember what country it was, but it was small. And it was the women there wanted to buy 10 goats, I think. They had a couple, but they wanted to buy 10. And the argument amongst the trustees, the six of us who are still there, were not in the business of social engineering. Penny's point was that the women, this will give the women agency. Uh, it will also be, you know, a business that they can possibly move into cheese or something like that, whatever. Um, but anyway, we went for it, even though we were, our business was not in trying to change an entire society, even if it was a small little village. And the women were given nothing. I think it was literally $100. And with that, they bought 10 or 12 goats, I think it was, possibly less. And they did very well. And the first thing that happened was that they'd give all their money, after they'd made a dress for themselves, they gave all their money to their husbands who gambled or drank it away. And so the, the, the project went reverted back to things as they'd always been. So my... Did I derive a lesson from this that you shouldn't mess with the essential local culture, that your interference actually damaged much more the you know, equanimity of, of the people in that village? And uh, I don't know what the answer is. We followed it up, but I, I can't remember. It was years ago. And again, the critique of philanthropy is that, you know, um, What's that thing where angels fear to thread? Fools step in where angels fear to oh, thread. Right. I know what yeah. you're saying. You, do, you give it to people who actually know what they're on about. But by giving it to the Baobab people, who I'm sure are absolutely brilliant and know their stuff and are connected with the community, you're letting this government off the hook. And th this government will do anything to be off the hook. You know, they have no sense or feeling of, uh, in my view, of society. Uh, and we seem to be allowing this to happen. We seem to go along, it seems to be the tenor of the times that this is okay, you know, that uh, there's some sea change in the way that Britain is thinking. I'm very uncomfortable uh, in this. The society I arrived in from Ireland was radically different in its, in its atmospheres and in its possibilities and allowing 
you know, Paddy here with zero, zero qualifications, get on with it, etc. I'm not sure that attitude exists. And by allowing them, by having great institutions and great people behind those institutions, forget global, that the interference with that little, with this part of the community of Britain negates the duty of government to achieve uh, an equitable society. And I sound very lefty here. Valley knows I'm not. I go, I go either which way. It just seems to be wrong. I totally agree that we shouldn't let governments off the hook. But by the same argument, you shouldn't give that one pound to a homeless man sitting on the street because that could be seen as letting governments off the hook about homelessness. I'm interested more in the giving away of power, which is to say we're sat here as three panellists all white and philanthropist is the least diverse sector I know. We have to think about giving away our power and, and letting other people make decisions about their own lives. I don't think that gets governments off the hook, but it's saying we will at least give up the power that we have so that people can have their own agency. Uh, well, um, your point well made. I, I don't think the analogy is good. A pound to a homeless person goes along with the fact, I wish he wasn't homeless. Um, but if a million people give a pound to the homeless, things change. And that's my point. Then you deal with the problem of homelessness, and they have to, because it's a million people. And if you want to make an issue of it, they're going to lose a million votes. Is I think what underscores... Sorry. Uh, I, I was going to say, it seems to me that what we're talking about here, what we've been talking about throughout this session, uh, that we, we we now must bring to a close, unfortunately, because we could we could we could indulge in these conversations all day. I think they're fascinating. What we're really talking about is change. We live in a time our problems multiply across every front: the return of populism, uh, climate crisis, racial injustice. Uh, these are problems to which philanthropy and the charity sector are not immune. Uh, we talked about the the, the the fall away of the Washington Consensus earlier. The pandemic might bring back the rise of a, a really hardcore neoliberalism on steroids. We see it in certain aspects of my economic research. So it seems to me these battles are never won. It's actually Thatcher who said, the battle for our, our ideas is never over. We're always fighting it. And I suppose my question this is the final question. I want to I give this one to Paul, actually, to give him the final word on this, but also to get his what he's learned from researching this book is, what is, what is the future vector of philanthropy's contribution to the fight for change, for sustainable change, for lasting change, given all the problems we face. What is, what is the future of philanthropy in a time of multiple crises as we live in now? Well, philanthropy has to take its, uh, its uh, role alongside other institutions. And as both Bob and Fran have touched, uh, the, 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 these problems are multifaceted. You give money to the homeless man, but you do something about homelessness. Uh, you, you give a, a meal to the, to the starving child, but you try and change the governance structures of the country, which uh, have brought about the conflict, which have led to the child being starving in the first place. And, and there's an interaction between philanthropy, between government, between uh, the, uh, the business sector, and uh, between the ordinary citizen and the, 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 the activist. Um, they've all got something to, to contribute. Um, we're, we're very preoccupied with the pandemic for obvious reasons, but you mentioned in passing there climate justice, and I think that climate uh, uh, change is the, is the huge problem on, on our horizon, and our generation really uh, have, uh, have passed the book. And, uh, you know, building back better means, means building back greener. And um, I think that if you look at philanthropy and the role it's playing on, on uh, climate change, um, the group of climate scientists pointed out last year that only 3% of all philanthropic uh, donations in this country and, and similar in the States uh, go to uh, environmental causes. You've got philanthropists like uh, uh, the Koch brothers who actually fund climate change denial. You've got other philanthropists like Mike, Michael Bloomberg who are trying to uh, wind down the coal industry in the States. You've got individuals who are doing things, but overall, philanthropy is not playing the part that it needs to in, in, in the fight to save the planet. So that, that, that's where I think I would end. All of these initiatives are, are valuable. Um, and um, as Pope Benedict said, even in the most, most just society, 
there will still be loneliness. So you can't do without the charitable impulse that, that Bob so vividly illustrated. Uh, I, I, but you, that has to go um, along with the, with the strategic impact vision that, that Franz talked about. Uh, and these really need to be brought to bear upon the climate crisis. That's stirring stuff. Oh, what a wonderful message to uh, bring this conversation to a close. I, I think we could talk long into the evening, but alas, uh, time's got ahead of us. Um, look, Bob, Fran and Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all of this. So big philosophical, political questions, a proper ding-dong in parts. You really gave it openly with such verve. I'm really appreciative. Thank you. Um, to those of you who are watching, hope you enjoyed it. You know, I hope this conversation has given you some idea of what you can find in Paul's fascinating book, Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. You can see them lined up behind him there. And I think this is the point where we hold up our copies and I only have a virtual copy. As it, um, happens, as it happens, I have one here. Oh, well, there we go. And, and Bob has oh. his. And, well, there you go. And, and oh, I must there. read it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating, hefty read and well worth uh, a few weeks of all months of anyone's time. But a wonderful, wonderful achievement, wonderful piece of work. And um, I, I really recommend it. I loved reading it. Information about where you can get hold of a copy will be found in the sidebar chat here as well. And on the RSA events, social media will be tweeting that out there, hopefully alongside the video of this talk. All that's left for me is to say thank you once again to all of my contributors and to you all for listening. See you next time here on RSA TV. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.